All right, everyone. I guess we'll get started. It's good to see you all this morning. Nice to be with you. Good morning. So I wanted to start this Sunday by asking who did their homework from last week. I know Dennis and Barb did. Uh, I knew Andrew and Sharon would. <laughs> the most reliable people on planet Earth. Um, let's see those hands again. I thought I saw oh, Mary. It's good. Oh, yeah. Nicole. Angeline. Okay. Well, I've got gold stars. I'll start handing them out to you next time I see you. Um, there are many important places in the Bible. There's places like... Egypt and Babylon and uh, Philistia that are enemies of God's people and they God uses <laughs> hi guys hi. morning they're enemies of God's people and God uses them to either um, to either turns them over to those enemies places or delivers them from those enemy places there's places like Mount Sinai which is the holy place where God's law was given where Israelite identity was galvanized in fire and smoke. Then there's uh, Bethlehem, where both David and Jesus were born. Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry. Um, throw in important New Testament church cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Philistia, or Philippi, sorry, uh, Thessalonica and others. And of course, there's like the ever-looming presence of Rome over top of the entire New Testament. These are all important places that that contribute to our understanding of who God is and how his people relate to him. But each one of these places pales in comparison to one sing, uh, significant city on a hill, uh, a city whose importance has never diminished over the past 3,000 years. It's as relevant today as it was in the time of David or the time of Paul or the time of the medieval crusades or the time of post-World War II relocation of persecuted Jews. It served as the royal uh, city for the line of kings for about 500 years of Israel's history. It served as ground zero for the formation of the early church. It served as a beacon of hope and holiness for millions of faith-filled children of God, both past excuse me, and present. It was conquered, but never lost its sacredness. It was crushed, but it was raised up triumphantly, which is very much like the greatest and most significant event that ever happened in the history of that city, or of any city for that matter when Jesus of Nazareth was also crushed outside of her city gates, only to conquer sin and death and raise up to life three days later, securing salvation for all who believe. That event alone would make the city that we're talking about today the most important city in history. And of course, the city that we're talking about is... Bethlehem! I saw Bill mouth it. Bill, you get another gold star. Way to go. Jerusalem. Not Bethlehem, sorry, so. The city we're talking about is Jerusalem. But Jerusalem isn't significant just as the site of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It has a rich history dating back at least 4,000 years. 3,000 of those years um, unfold after the events of today that we're going to look at. Jerusalem is mentioned 800 times in the Bible, over 800 times. So it's really important. And today we learn how Jerusalem, which is or was a rather unassuming town in a rather unassuming part of the world, became not only the most crucially important city in the Old Testament, but of all human history. Jerusalem still represents something beautiful and powerful for us today, even though none of us has ever been there. I think Darcy and Kathy are probably the only ones in our church community who have been there, unless maybe Angeline you have, I don't know. Um, but even if we've never been there, or likely ever will be there, 
Um, even though its history is dusty and bloody and ancient, it is also glorious and holy and hopeful, even for us who've never been there and probably never will. And it all begins with our passage this morning from 2 Samuel. But before we read that later in the sermon, we're going to read a couple passages um, that talk about Jerusalem but are not in 2 Samuel. And the first is going to be uh, Psalm 78. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And Jerusalem is in, Jerusalem is Mount Zion. We'll talk about that later. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him to be shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. So that connects last week, we're talking about the shepherd heart of God, with this week talking about God ruling from the city of Jerusalem. And the last one is Luke 19. And uh, I'm going to reference this later in the sermon as well. This is the, the triumphant entry. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So the triumphant entry, Jesus arrives like a king into Jerusalem and immediately weeps over it, and then after goes and cleans the, clears the temple. So we'll talk about that later. I just wanted to read that now. All right. So based on my intro about how important Jerusalem is, how many of you are thinking, is he going to do an entire sermon on one city? Yeah, we are. That's what we're going to do. Zoe whispered, I was. Um this morning, we're, we're talking about Jerusalem from front to back, but first we're going to read the passage, which is 2 Samuel 5, 6-16, and then you get to endure some word nerd moments, which I know is your favorite. So this is 2 Samuel 5, 6-16. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. 
And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. So there you go. If you were wondering, there that's the names. The city that we now know as Jerusalem is first mentioned in the Bible way back in Genesis 14. There, a mysterious priest named Melchizedek gives Abraham a blessing. This Melchizedek is a holier man than even Abraham. He's like this mystical pilgrim priest. And he's even holier than Abraham. And scripture says that he is the king of Shalem, which is an early abbreviated version of Jerusalem. It would seem that Jerusalem's history of holiness predates even the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's got a long history of holiness. But the name Jerusalem is first uh, appears in written history through the Egyptians about 900 years before David. At that time, the name Jerusalem or Urusalem meant foundation, foundation of Shalem. So Uru means to found, like a cornerstone, the thing you build something strong upon. And Shalem was the name of the Canaanite god of the setting sun and the netherworld, as well as health and perfection. So um, Jerusalem means the cornerstone of this pagan Canaanite god. However, the root word for the god Shalem, Shalem is the same root word as the word Shalom. And that is likely a much more familiar word to you than the name of some obscure pagan idol. Shalom means peace, the peace that comes with completeness. The peace that comes when everything is as it's intended to be. That's what shalom means. Therefore, once the Hebrew people took over the city under the leadership of David, Jerusalem no longer meant strong foundation of the Canaanite god of the netherworld, and instead took up the meaning by which it's still known today, the city of peace. Knowing the history of the city as we do when we think of Jerusalem through the ages, uh, right down to its involvement in the life of Christ, that that title, city of peace, is pretty ironic because it's in a very tumultuous part of the world, but it's also powerful and beautifully true. Many cities, as you know, have strange and delightful and purposeful nicknames. Paris is the city of lights, being such a beautiful place. Las Vegas is Sin City, and it earns that title. New York is the Big Apple. I don't really know why. Chicago is the Windy City, as is Lethbridge, which is just as famous as Chicago. Hamilton is Steel Town, but I've always preferred the Hammer, given that it's an abbreviated name of, of the name itself and kind of alludes to its working class industrial roots. Saskatoon, I didn't know this. Saskatoon has a really cool nickname. Did you know it's called the Pow City? And Pow stands for potash, oil, and wheat. So it's the Pow City. I, was, I, I just learned that. I thought it was cool. And Edmonton is, of course, the city of champions, or at least it was in the 80s when the Oilers and, and Eskimos were winning everything hasn't been much of a champion city since. Now we're more of an oil city, which is kind of gross. Although we were nicknamed Edmonton in 2011 when Edmonton led the nation in homicides per capita. So that's lovely. But I've always preferred Edmonchuk, which is a, a nod to the, the many Ukrainian roots around the area. I like Edmonchuk. I think that's funny. And as we all know, Clyde, Alberta is famous for its nickname, Lanceville, in honor of its most prominent citizen. Not me. It's not me, of course. It's Angie Lance. 
which is also why Fisherville, Ontario is known by the nickname Daily Land. She's just that famous. Okay. <laughs> well, just like Sin City, The Hammer, Edmund Chuck, and of course Lanceville, Jerusalem also has nicknames that point to its identity, what it's all about. Along with City of Peace, which is both a nickname and a good translation of the word, Jerusalem is also given other titles in scripture. It's called the City of David or City of the Great King, partly because it's David who seizes it and builds it up as a mighty fortress, but also partly because a lot of the theological significance and status that Jerusalem has as a city of hope comes from its connection to the line of kings, beginning with our friend Davy Boy. Throughout the Old Testament, it's also known as uh, the city of the holy place because the temple resides in the city of Jerusalem. In Isaiah 29, Jerusalem is called Ariel by the prophet, and Ariel means Lion of God, which is the coolest nickname for a city ever, Lion of God. Interestingly, and perhaps I'm misusing that word, I find it interesting, <laughs> maybe, maybe you won't, but interestingly, when the time came to translate the Hebrew name Jerusalem into Greek, they called it Jerusalem, and that Ieru part of the beginning no longer means foundation. In Greek, Ieru means holy. So in the time of the New Testament, Jerusalem came to mean holy city of peace, which is an even more perfect na name for its purpose than the original name, foundation of peace. Now, before your eyes glaze over too much, other poetic titles for Jerusalem throughout scripture include the virgin, the sought after, city of truth, city of joy, faithful city, righteous dwelling, and my personal favorite, Oasis of Justice, which is a great nickname as well. But there's two more names for or two more titles for Jerusalem that I need to briefly tell you about. And one in particular is hard to miss as we read through the Bible. We've already read it a couple times this morning, and it pops up for the first time in 2 Samuel 5. But first, Jerusalem is built on a series of hills, which is what made it so ideal as a fortress city for David. One of those hills was known as Mount Moriah. Now, I'm sure that name doesn't ring a bell, but it's an important place. In fact, according to tradition, Mount Moriah was the location where Abraham went to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the promised one from whom the lineage of faith would descend. Instead of sacrificing him, God gives Isaac, uh, God saves Isaac by providing a, a ram in his place. And that was a turning point for God's people, demonstrating the power of faith and willingness to sacrifice. Apparently, that happened on Mount Moriah before Jerusalem had been built up. So it's pretty obvious connection to Jesus, right? Jesus, who himself was executed next to Mount Moriah, God's only son, like Isaac, the sacrificial lamb who was slaughtered in our place, just like the ram that God provided. So it's a pretty beautiful connection. And Mount Moriah, the, the balance of power in Scripture by 2 Samuel 5 has moved now from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, now to Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem will be located. Anyway, once Jerusalem was fortified, Mount Moriah was given a new name. Uh, and this is a name that I'm certain that you're familiar with. Zion. Zion. Zion is the hill where the temple would, have, would eventually be built, meaning that it housed the holy center of Israelite faith and life. All of Israelite faith, all of Israelite identity was built on Zion which is this offshoot hill in the city of Jerusalem. Today's passage is the first time the name Zion appears in scripture where it says David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. 
Though Zion is just one hill in a city of several hills, it would soon become representative of the city as a whole in the same way that Parliament Hill is representative of, of Ottawa or the White House is representative of Washington, D.C. or slightly less grandly and classy West Edmonton Mall is a symbol of Edmonton. Not quite the same what grandeur. About the Empire State? Or the Empire State Building in New York City, sure. Lots of buildings come to represent their city as a whole, and Zion is like that. Um, but Zion would become so representative of Jerusalem that they, be, be, they become synonymous in Scripture. Especially when God's people were exiled from Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and Andrew mentioned this already. When they're taken away, ripped away from Jerusalem, sent into the hands of a foreign enemy, they, the prophets would, would write to them and, and urge them to turn their eyes to Zion, or return to Zion, or put your hope in Zion. In fact, Zion is mentioned 168 times in Scripture, including 1 Peter 2.6, which reads, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That stone in Zion is Jesus, the cornerstone, which is a play on words for the name of Jerusalem, the foundation of our faith. So all of that is to say that Jerusalem is very, 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 very important. But in the same way that Trump's followers attacking the Capitol building was more than just another building, Jerusalem is more than just another capital city. It's a symbol of everything the Israelites held dear. It's a symbol of peace and holiness, of ceremony and sacrifice, of provision and providence. It's, it's their king's presence. And more than that, it's their God's presence. God was thought to reside in Jerusalem. It was their source of identity and the source of hope wrapped up in the dual presences of monarch, king, and deity, God. All of that is found in Jerusalem. Its name originally meant foundation, and that's fitting. Jerusalem is foundational to God's people's understanding of who they are and who he is. And it all begins in 2 Samuel 5. The passage opens with David marching to take the city from the Jebusites who mock David before they're booted out of the city. And finally, they're booted out of the city. Finally, because Jerusalem was named 400 years earlier in Joshua 15 as one of the cities within the boundaries of the promised land that Israel was to conquer with God's help. So these Jebusites had lived in Jerusalem for centuries because the Israelites, for whatever reason, had never bothered to claim the city. In, in over 400 years, they had never bothered to take it, even though God told them to take it way back in Joshua 15. And David finally does conquer it in 2 Samuel 5. So in David's mind, he's simply reclaiming Israelite property which God had allowed or actually commanded so long ago, 400 years. And finally, finally, the Israelites are taking it. But it's more than just an example of divine finders keepers. Jerusalem is a perfect city for David to rule from for several reasons. First of all, it's heavily fortified atop the hill and becomes even more heavily fortified with the assistance of King Hiram of Tyra and his fancy cedar and stone palace that he builds for David. So, Jerusalem has a military advantage, but it also has a political advantage. David is from Judah to the south, and he has reigned from the city of Hebron, which is also to the south, but he still needs to build and retain the trust of his fellow Israelites to the north. Jerusalem is conveniently located right near the middle, and since it had never been taken from the Jebusites, it is essentially neutral territory between Israel and Judah. It's a place they can all agree on had never really been theirs. And so when, 
when David takes it, it becomes all of theirs. And it's right in the middle. So there's a military advantage, there's a political advantage. But finally, and most importantly, there's all the theological reasons that I've mentioned. With Jerusalem being a foundational city of peace and holiness and sacrifice. From now on, however Jerusalem goes, that's how the people of God will go, and vice versa. Their fates and identities are intrinsically linked, beginning with David. When the people are unfaithful and exiled, Jerusalem is leveled to the ground. When they cry out to him and return to faith in exile, they also are allowed to return to Zion. That's the story of Nehemiah and Ezra. They rebuild Jerusalem and are allowed to go back. After Jerusalem largely rejects Jesus, which is what we read about in Luke 19, it once again, the city is once again leveled by the Romans in 70 AD, which is what Jesus predicted and wept over in the passage we read from Luke 19. As Jesus weeps, he declares, they will not leave one stone on another, and other, it will be completely destroyed, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So however Israel's faith goes, so goes Jerusalem. It could be a place of peace or division, a place of holiness or pride and injustice. It could be a place of great good or a place of great evil. And that tension between good and evil is present right from the beginning, even in this passage today. When we read it, it seems like it's just a total slam dunk victory for David, right? I mean, the pinnacle verse is verse 10, which reads, and David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So, it's a slam dunk victory because at this point, David is still relying on Yahweh. But the author also plants some seeds of coming calamity. First of all, the mention of Hiram and cedar logs anticipates a time when David will become overly secure and self-sufficient and begin ignoring the direction of Yahweh. He will stop being the shepherd of Israel and start becoming the dictator of Israel because of his wealth and power and comfort. We'll see that in the chapters to come. Second of all, the mention of David taking even more concubines and wives is also problematic. Usually in scripture it talks of wives and concubines, but our narrator reverses the order and starts with concubines to, to highlight the issue for David. He is being guided by his lust more than his faith. In fact, Deuteronomy 17.17 17 strictly forbids kings of Israel from having many wives, and it warns that their hearts may be led astray. And for David, we'll again see that in the stories to come. And finally, there is the strange and problematic statement about the blind and the lame. Most translators don't really know what to do with that portion. It's very vague and bizarre. It starts off understandable enough. The Jebusites mock David's initial efforts to take their fortified city. They say, even the blind and the lame could protect this city. It's so well, so well fortified, so well guarded. What, what chance do you have, David? That arrogance is turned against them, however, as David conquers them by shimmying up the, the drain pipe or the sewer pipe or whatever it is. But it's the ugly statement at the end of verse 8 that is most problematic. The blind and lame will not enter the palace. Again, the commentators I read, they did not know what to do with this passage. They didn't know how to translate it. But everybody is sure that it somehow excludes those with physical defects from enjoying the full blessings of Zion. It's not God who excludes the visibly imperfect from his presence. It's the shepherds of Israel who do that. How can Jerusalem, holy city of peace, truly be a place of peace and holiness if members of the community are to be excluded 
for such heartless reasons. How can Jerusalem be a shining light of God's love if physical defects that a person can't even control makes them feel despised and unwanted in God's presence? Especially when God says things like this. This is Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will satisfy with food. I will provide her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a strong horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's powerful. And in the midst of all that glory and of, of for David and all that joyful singing, something else pops up. Kind of easy to gloss over. And that something is crucial. It's justice and service to the poor. Zion is to be a place where the poor come to be satisfied, where the blind come to see God, where the deaf come to hear from God, where the hungry are filled and the vulnerable are, vulnerable are protected. As soon as Jerusalem becomes a city for the elite, it will fall repeatedly. It happens several times. It's to be a haven of justice, of compassion and truth. Only then will it be the holy city. Only then will it be founded on peace when there is justice, when there is provision for the needy. This is the other reason why Jesus weeps. Not only that Jerusalem will fall, but why it will fall. Jesus weeps because he knows that they have ignored the true source of peace, which is what Jesus says in Luke 19.42. If you, even you, Jerusalem, city of peace, if even you had known on this day what would truly bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. They missed the point. And because of that, they're going to fall apart. They're going to crumble. They're going to be completely leveled. Given that Jesus says that immediately after arriving on a donkey and immediately before clearing the profiteers from the temple and one week before he'd be crucified and resurrected, it's clear where he intends for them to see peace coming from. Peace comes from things like humility and sacrifice and bringing glory to God, not glory to self. All those things that Jesus represented perfectly, that's where peace comes from. That's true peace. That's true holiness. Welcoming the poor and vulnerable as brothers and sisters, not excluding them and rejecting them. That's the shalom of the gospel, that everyone has a seat at God's table. That's the peace of fullness and completeness, that all are welcome. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what's wrong with you, because there's wrong with everyone, all are welcome in the holy city. That's the shalom of Jerusalem. That's the peace of the city of peace. David, Solomon, and the kings after them, they would forget about that. In their comfort and power and wealth, they saw themselves as immune to judgment, and they became ignorant to his direction. The Pharisees and Sadducees, a thousand years later, they would make the same mistake. They would turn Jerusalem into a whitewashed tomb, pure and clean on the outside, but rotten and filthy and dead on the inside. And Jesus weeps for it. We see the beginnings of all these issues right here in 2 Samuel 5. There is lust for power and flesh creeping into the city of David. There is exclusion of others from the presence of God based on superficial things like disabilities and economics. Those are problems that Jerusalem would have to wrestle with for the rest of scriptural history. But along with those problems, we also see the beautiful, glorious purposes that the city would come to represent. There is victory for those who put their trust in God. We see that right here in 2 Samuel 5. 
There's a city on a hill, a beacon of righteousness and holiness and peace. To paraphrase a terrible song by Jefferson Starship, and apologies if you like this song, I happen to not, David built this city. He built this city on love and hope. For the rest of its existence, this city of love and hope stands as a welcome to God's people, as well as a warning. The welcome is for everyone, healthy and sick alike. The warning is that you'd better recognize yourself as more sick than healthy. The welcome is to experience the fullness of God, and the warning is to purge yourself of selfishness and pride and greed. The, the welcome is an invitation for peace and holiness and hope, and the warning is the cost of declining that invitation. So I hope you got something out of that portrait of Jerusalem, the holy foundational city of peace. I, it shouldn't be surprising that the most transformative act in all of history occurred just outside the gates of Zion. But still, what does an ancient city across the world have to do with my faith today? Jerusalem itself holds very little power over me personally because I've never been there. But Jerusalem, as a symbol, as laid out in scripture, transcends the walls of the city of David. So I want to explain quickly, to close, what all of this talk about Jerusalem has to do with you and I. The author of Hebrews understood that the powerful symbolism of Jerusalem wasn't locked into the dusty hills of Israel. Writing about Abraham in Hebrews 11, the author writes, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham had his eyes set on God's holy city, and it caused him to follow in faith. In the next chapter, Hebrews 12 compares two mountains, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, where the holy temple was built. Sinai, the place of the law, is called a place of fear, of darkness and gloom and trembling, where nobody can approach. We do not belong to that mountain. We do not belong to the law in all its fear and imperfection. That's not the mountain that we belong to, is what Hebrews says. We don't belong to the law and all its rules. Instead, the author writes, in Hebrews 12, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You don't belong to Sinai. You belong to this powerful, beautiful city. You are not children of Sinai in all its fear and doom and failure. We live in a city of singing and belonging and goodness where our judge makes us perfect and our savior forges a new covenant based on grace. Where we are firstborn children of our heavenly father and where heaven itself is our joyful, unshakable home. That's our mountain. That's our city. But the thing about following Jesus is that although we already live, although we're already citizens of that glorious city, we're still journeying towards it. The author of Hebrews closes the book one chapter later by dealing with this already but not yet tension of faith, of anticipating what is to come like Abraham, while also recognizing that we already dwell in the holy presence of our king. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 13, For here on earth we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We are on our way to Zion, even though we already live there. We have a taste of Jerusalem here on earth, but it's only a taste. It's only a sampling of peace and holiness and a life founded on our king, demonstrating his sacrificial love. One day, we'll dance through the gates and experience the fullness of life in the king's holy city. That city is described in the very last words of scripture, Revelation 21 and 22. It tells of the time to come when we will no longer have to climb the hill to Zion to be in the presence of God. Instead, Jerusalem will come down to us. This is what John writes in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's our city, flowing with streams of life, with beautiful trees of light, that, and it's coming down to us. We're not there fully yet, but we get to taste it now, and soon we'll get to dwell in there fully when he brings it down, the recreated heaven and earth. The rest of chapters 21 and 22 then go on to describe this beautiful new city, and you can read it for yourself if you'd like. That can be your homework if you want. Revelations 21 and 22, which describes the city but I've almost, <laughs> I'm aware that I've tried to cram too much into this sermon. It's probably just a lot of information. But here's the point. We are citizens of a city that we've never seen. As citizens, we are given peace and holiness and belonging, which is everything Jerusalem was supposed to stand for. Peace and holiness and belonging. So long as our lives are empty of selfishness and exclusions of others and greed. As long as we are founded on Jesus Christ, we are citizens of this city. Our home is the new Jerusalem, the royal city with the lamb upon the throne. In that, we can place our hope. That's what our hope is founded on, the city that is coming down to us. In the same way they put their hope in Zion, we too can long for what's ahead at the end of our long upward journey towards our shepherd king. That's our city. That's our home. And while we journey towards it, he brings it down to us. Jerusalem is ahead, but it's also here. You'll notice in Hebrews 12 where it says we're looking for, Hebrews talks about we're looking forward to the city to come, but it also has jobs for us to do now. We're still supposed to be agents of peace, agents of sacrifice, just like Jerusalem always was meant to be. Whether you're from the Big Apple or Gastown or the City of Champions or humble little Lanceville, you are welcomed into God's holy city of peace. And he built this city on love and hope. 
Let's pray. Jesus, you are the lamb. You are the king of this city. Thank you for bringing the city down to us, this kingdom down to us. We know that this city is a place of peace, of joy, um, of service and sacrifice. And so I pray that you'd help us to be good citizens now so that we can enter the gates with with dancing and singing and, and celebrate you and bring glory and praise to you, Jesus. We see all the beautiful ways that you're bringing this new Jerusalem down to us now. Thank you for the victory of this city. Thank you for the peace of this city. Help us to be founded on you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your strong and powerful name. Amen. As long as we are founded on Jesus Christ, we are citizens of this city. Our home is the new Jerusalem, the royal city with the lamb upon the throne. In that, we can place our hope. But I heard that uh, when you burn diapers, then it doesn't make good hot dogs, roasty hot dogs. Oh my, that's awful. Okay, we're muting. <laughs> I love Zoom Church.